0: Hello and welcome. Thank you for downloading this week's Sermon and Prayers of Intercession from the English Reformed Church, Amsterdam. We hope you will enjoy what you are about to hear and that you will be blessed. Let us pray. Come among us, Jesus, local boy, welcomed home. Bring ancient words to life. Amen. One lesson that politicians might learn from recent world events, if they didn't know it already, is beware of campaign promises. Although he claimed otherwise last week, I wonder if David Cameron now regrets committing his party to a referendum on Britain's membership of the European Union in the 2015 Party Manifesto. And I wonder if deep down, Donald Trump does not now regret combining in one sentence in his campaign rallies the words, border, wall, Mexico, and pay for it. Campaign promises have a habit of coming back to bite politicians. Now that might seem like an odd way to begin a sermon on chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel, which describes the return of Jesus to his hometown of Nazareth at the start of his public ministry. He was not a candidate in any elections. He wasn't exactly campaigning. In fact, what we read about took place in the town synagogue. In other words, it took place in religious surroundings, in the place where religious texts were read and discussed. And that of course means, as we all know, that what went on that day in the synagogue had nothing whatsoever to do with politics. For politics and religion, as we all know, do not mix and inhabit different planets. Well, if you think that, it's high time to think again. Last week in my sermon, I was suggestion, suggesting that Christians have betrayed the gospel by eliminating the centrality and significance of the church, the people of God, in God's plans for bringing salvation to the world. Too much theology has all but written out of God's plan of strategy for the world, the church. So there's a version of the gospel that can be summed up by saying that the world has gone wrong, we are all sinners, Jesus came to save us, and if you believe all that, you will go to heaven. In that account, the church is an afterthought. It's just a gathering of individuals who are on their way to heaven. Yippee! Well, that's not the story the Bible tells. And it has never been more vital, especially in these days of secularism and suspicion of religion, that we rediscover the place of the church in God's plans and how we fit into that as individuals. And aside from our reading from Luke's gospel, this is very much the concern of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, which I preached on last week, and which we read in parallel with Luke this morning. It's all about Christ existing as a community, the church as the body of Christ and His tangible presence on earth. So this morning I want to ask what we might learn about the church from Jesus' sermon in His home in Nazareth. the first thing we learn is that as the body of Christ and the expression of Christ in the world, the church has a manifesto, and it's based on Jesus' manifesto for His ministry, which He is laying out here in His hometown. And if the word manifesto has political overtones, well, so it should because the passage that Jesus quotes here is political through and through. Listen again, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free. Now of course there are those who will spiritualize all this by saying that Jesus is talking here of those who are spiritually poor and who are captive to sin and blind to the truth of God. Well, people would say that, especially those who have a vested interest in the status quo and in social arrangements that benefit them. But suffice to say, that if this message, which Jesus lived out in his ministry, had been intended to be spiritualized and depoliticized like that, then Jesus would not have ended up being crucified but would have ended up in a retirement home for benevolent rabbis who had some interesting things to say about God and the spiritual life and the importance of being nice to one another. No, crucifixion was for political subversives, and in this sense, Jesus fully deserved it. So poor, in this quote from Isaiah, means poor. Oppression means oppression. The oppression of those… the oppression that comes to those who end up at the bottom of a society that is ruled by mammon. So that's the first point. The church has a manifesto that is based on Jesus' manifesto, and it's political through and through. The second thing that we learn about the church from this passage is that the church has a language, a language, and let me explain. Jesus quotes here from the prophet Isaiah, who refers to God's servant who will let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, what does that mean, the year of the Lord's favor? What is that referring to? Well, in order to understand that, we have to refer to an institution in ancient Israel that was known as the Sabbath year, In ancient Israel, the Sabbath was not just a day, once a week, but it was also a year every seventh year. And the Sabbath year was good news for some, and it was less good news for others. The Sabbath year was good news first of all for the land, because the land lay fallow and rested. The land could rest and not be exploited. It was left alone every seven years. But the Sabbath year was also good news for slaves, because they had to be released. You could be forced into slavery for six years, but the seventh you were liberated. And the Sabbath year was also good news for those who were in debt, for every seven years debts were written off. Just imagine that. And then every seven years, every seventh Sabbath years, in other words, every 50 years, there was what was called the Jubilee year, in which, as in the Sabbath year, the land lay untended, and slaves were released, and debts were cancelled, only as well as that, any land that had been sold returned to its original owner. So, if you were some big deal property developer, you could buy up as much land as you liked Benefiting, no doubt, from downturns in the economy, but every jubilee, every 50 years, it all returned to its original onus. So the Sabbath and jubilee years had ecological and economic and political dimensions, and they worked against extremes of wealth and poverty. They were social regulatory mechanisms that resisted disparity of wealth. And what is so beautiful is that the Jubilee year began on the Day of Atonement when God dealt with Israel's sins. In other words, the jubilee year included the forgiveness of sins, social, structural sins in the life of the nations, but also individual sins too. Salvation includes the forgiveness of sins. Of course it does, but it has far, far wider horizons. And every 50th year, Everyone was given a fresh start. Everything returned to a level playing field. Well, surprise, surprise, there is no evidence that despite being in the law, the Sabbath and Jubilee years were ever practiced in Israel. Of course they weren't. Why would they be when the very people who could have made them happen, well, it was hardly in their interests. Redistribution of wealth, what? Land left untended, what a wasted opportunity for profit. But Isaiah here in the passage Jesus quotes is speaking at a time when God is on the move. Something new is happening in the life of the nation. They are returning home from exile in Babylon. They are making a fresh start. And what better way to celebrate a fresh start than with a jubilee? And that's why Jesus chose this passage that day in the synagogue because he is proclaiming too that with his arrival, God is doing something new. God is back on the scene. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In effect, Jesus is saying, it's a fresh start, so let's celebrate a jubilee. And I don't think that Jesus was meaning this literally. He had neither the power nor the authority to literally declare a jubilee. But what He is doing is taking that ancient theme and imaginatively and creatively reinterpreting it for His ministry. In a sense, he had a language with which to proclaim his message, a language that drew on deep currents in his nation's psyche. And so too with us as the church. It is not enough to have a manifesto. We need a language in which to couch it. And so much of political discourse today is flat and thin and bureaucratic and cliched. We talk of peace and justice, but these terms need to be filled out and enriched by being embedded in foundational stories and traditions that give them depth and power. Two weeks ago was Martin Luther King Day in the USA, and he provides a brilliant example of this. King did not just talk about racial justice and an end to discrimination. In fantastic flights of oratory, He echoed ancient biblical cadences drawing on those narrative wellsprings that his faith gave him. The exodus, the exile, Moses, the mountaintop, Isaiah, and his language fired his manifesto. So with us, the church has a language of its own. Yes, we join with the world in speaking of justice and peace, and they are part of our manifesto. But our language has depth and resonance, emerging as it does from the story of God's people. And of course, our distinctive language is also expressed in songs which gives it additional power. And Martin Luther King's movement had its songs. And these were often the old slave songs of liberation that drew upon the Bible, but gloriously reconfigured and recast the biblical imagery, thus profoundly subverting the songs of the oppressors, the slave owners. But that's another story. For now, Jesus the Jew, Jesus the Israelite had a language in which to couch His manifesto, and so do we, a language in which we are versed by our Scriptures and that gives us our distinct identity. And that brings me to one last final point, along with its manifesto and its language, the church that is shaped by Christ has an identity that is shaped by the jubilee. And in these days of secularism and church decline, the church faces a massive identity crisis. In a post-Christian society, who are we? Who or what is the church? What does it mean to be the body of Christ? Well, maybe we could begin to answer that by following Jesus and taking the jubilee as a key to who we are. We could follow Jesus by creatively and imaginatively reinterpreting jubilee for our time what would it mean for the church to be the Jubilee community? What would it mean for this church? How would that affect our life together and our impact on the world? How would it influence our mission? How would we live as citizens of earth, and citizens of God's kingdom, if we were to live out now the year of the Lord's favor. How would it be if we were actually to believe that back there in Nazareth, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath day, the Lord rolled up the scroll and declared, today, This scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen.
1: We bring our prayers of intercession. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, on Holocaust Memorial Day, let us remember all victims of the Holocaust who were dehumanized in the eyes of their persecutors. It is our sacred duty to remember them, each with their own unique hopes and dreams, but all cruelly denied a future. O Father, we pray that this terrible stain of history is never forgotten and never repeated. At the end of the week of Christian unity, we pray for our sister churches here in Amsterdam and also the churches in our own hometowns. In the news we read of two church bombings in the Philippines, and we pray for your blessing on all victims of religious oppression. Lord, thank you for Pastor Lance, and we pray for your continued blessing on him as he leads our congregation. Lord of Miracles, grant your healing grace to all who are sick, injured, or disabled. Grant to all who are lonely, anxious, or depressed a knowledge of your will and awareness of your presence. Restore sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf, and may our ears and eyes be open to those in need. Lord of life, sustain and support those who seek your guidance, and lift up all who are brought low by the trials of this life. Grant to all who minister to those who are suffering wisdom and skill, sympathy and patience. We pray all these things in your holy name. Amen.